I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 97, we read, Forget the Economics of Grievance, an article by Michael Strain from National Review, published uh, earlier this year. Michael Strain is the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute where he oversees the Institute's work on economic policy, financial markets, international trade, finance, tax and budget, and some other stuff. So Michael Strain wrote this uh, article just a a few weeks ago, and it caught our eye. So we figured we'd pick it up. His main argument here is he says, basically the ascendancy of Donald Trump, he says, uh, created, well, introduced this blend of economic nationalism and conservative populism that he believes is not didn't really do much for the working class. And he says there's every reason to believe that more of this approach in the future will lead to the same disappointing outcomes. Now, I think the article focuses a little bit more on kind of the potential ideology of the, let's call them the Trump wannabes or the tw- Trump followers as opposed to Trump himself. He touches on a couple of the, the Trump policies, but by and large, he's mostly targeting the folks who have come in the Trump wake, a couple of whom we've uh, we've read before, like Orrin mm-hmm. Cass and so forth. So we'll get to them. So first, let me correct something I said. This is episode 98, not episode 97. It's, it's hard to keep track after so many. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here is, you know, Trump's, I think what, what Strain is especially getting at is Trump taking the Republican Party in a direction that is more uh, more of an explicit industrial policy, more of saying what our economy should do, uh, what kind of jobs we should have, and what kind of tariffs we can impose to make that happen. And that definitely flies in the face of kind of a, uh, honestly, a bipartisan consensus since since NAFTA went into effect, where free trade and deregulation were definitely Republican issues. Uh, some Democrats, too, including a uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton and, and many others in that in that sort of moderate Democrat lane. Trump, as we all remember, uh, sort of rebelled against that consensus and and Strain takes him to task here. I I think he's he's kind of conflating a few things. Now he he, he says he says that the only good economic policies to come out of Trump's administration were actually old timey Republican policies like cutting the taxes and uh, doing some deregulation, which I think the deregulation doesn't get mentioned enough. Trump did a lot of that. And it actually, I think it actually was as big a contributor to our good economy in those years as the tax cuts. I mean, I I think there was a lot of red tape that got cut and because the media's hair was on fire over whatever mean tweet he sent that day, they weren't even covering it, but it was good stuff. Uh, Even our media, even our conservative media wasn't covering it that much, but, uh, Stuff that normally would have had the liberals, you know, up in arms about cutting the, you know, cutting this and simplifying that. A lot of good stuff got done while they were looking other ways. So I, I, he does give him credit for that, but he, he kind of gives him a backhanded credit by saying 
yeah, that stuff's not actually nationalist or populist. That's that's good old fashioned libertarianism. True, um, but yeah, it's sort of a it's a weird way to start it out. But yeah, he, he does he does give some slight credit to uh, to Trump on that. I mean, so essentially, Trump ran on two two main policies that were a little bit counter to what Repub- Republican typical orthodoxy, and that is uh, when it comes to trade, free trade. And America first, and then when it comes to immigration. So Michael Strains here says, the Trumpian economic nationalism and populism did not help the working class. That's his main uh, thesis. And the two things that he points to really are the trade war with China, which uh, I'll get to in just a week, we'll get to in just a minute. And then also what he calls browbeating and publicly shaming companies. And he did this to to Foxconn and Harley Davidson and, and came to the aid of carrier. If you remember Mm -hmm. and and strain is going to say that that was all public relations and really did absolutely nothing to improve the economic situation or employment situation for these companies. And, and I think that's, I think that's definitely true. (laughs) I I agree with strain on that point that, um, that it, that it actually didn't accomplish very much in the very short term carrier, announced that they weren't going to move their facility or whatever. But I think it could be the case that they ultimately did. I, I can't remember. Maybe you remember, Kyle, but I, yeah, I don't. In any event, like it was, it really was kind of a, 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 a public relations move. And, uh, and then they quickly just sort of went back to whatever they were doing. So I agree with them there. When it, when it comes to the, uh, the trade war with China, this is an area where you and I may disagree a little bit. So it could be fun. He says, protection provided by the Trump tariffs on imports from China and other nations boosted manufacturing employment. That did happen. But he said at the cost of those firms that uh, produce intermediate goods, they basically have to export those abroad. And so all the inputs that were coming from China or coming from uh, Canada, steel was one of these main ones, right? Uh, any, Any production that's happening in America that required steel inputs, were definitely much more expensive because they had to be produced in America rather than coming from Canada. And so on top of those, of course, probably the most damaging was the retaliatory tariffs coming back from China. Now, I think the Canadians were a little bit more circumspect, but there was retaliatory tariffs from from Europe and, and definitely from China, which actually remain today. So he says, all told, the trade war reduced U.S. employment and manufacturing by 2.7%, because even though it did boost manufacturing employment for in certain sectors like steel, it actually hurt in these others because of retaliatory tariffs, because of um, firms that that uh, take inputs and create um, intermediate goods. F- farm labor, for example, um, decreased, and farm um, profits definitely decreased. He says, counties with more exposure to the tariffs had elo- elevated unemployment rates and that's definitely in the in the midwest those um, farmers and and ranchers the trade war increased overall consumer prices now i'm gonna i'm gonna certainly kick it to you and let you um, disagree with him here the the orange castes of the world will definitely say probably admit that all those things happened but then say but that was worth it um, because for those jobs that did exist they were bolstered to the point where those jobs could provide for a family, let's say, or at least, um, you know, provided more of a, a living wage that could, that could sustain a family rather than 
before when when our American firms had to compete with uh, Canadian steel or the Chinese um, dumping of steel. Well, that was much, that's much more difficult, far fewer employees. And, there, and I'll be the first to admit that the Chinese dumping of steel is, is definitely a major problem that, uh, that needed to be addressed. But, but ultimately, those, those tariffs still remain into effect because um, President Biden, although he, he railed against them in the, on the campaign trail, now that he's in office, I mean, this really is, I mean, Trump, mm-hmm. he, uh, you hand it to Trump because he, he found a couple issues, trade being one of them, immigration the other, where it's actually like 65, 70% of Americans agree with him. Yeah, and and both parties were ignoring it. So it was. I mean, he did a lot of stuff that I thought was mm, sort of self inflicted harm on his on his own campaign. But on those two issues, he he was savvier than most of the professionals out there. I'll I'll say this: if you think if if your highest goal is to have cheap consumer goods, then strain is right. That policy is not a good one. But I. I think that that sort of that begs the question, right? That doesn't that presumes the thing that we're trying to answer here. Like, what is what is the good? What is the highest good? Is it just about efficiency and cheap goods? Well, sure. Okay, then let's make them. You know, let's let's have Chinese slave labor make them because it is quite cheap, right? If that's the only thing that matters. I I, I think Trump and I think a lot of probably most Americans would say there's there's more to life than getting cheap stuff at Walmart. Cheap is good. You know, I I like cheap stuff. I, I like to, you know, my house is, I've got too much stuff in it right now. And a lot of it's stuff that we probably wouldn't have bought if it was more expensive. When he rails against a trade war, I think it, it also sort of frames the issue incorrectly. And part of this is because Trump was imprecise in the way he spoke about such things. Um, Trump talked about the trade war and the trade deficit also as, as these were like, those are the ends. Like that's what we're going for. But war is never the end in itself, whether we're talking about a real war or we're talking about a, a trade war. The reason you have a trade war is because you want to get to a, a new, better resolution for yourself. Now, the way Trump fought the trade war was not actually to involve Congress at all. So I think already you have one hand tied behind your back. And that's because he, he wasn't good at dealing with Congress. And that's and neither is Joe Biden. A lot of our modern presidents aren't. It's a lot of effort, and when there's so much power already delegated to the president, especially on a thing like tariffs, which is insane, you know, the idea that the president can say, something's messed up in the economy, I'm going to raise tariffs 10%. Like, that's nuts. But Congress gave away that power years ago. I mean, can you imagine if they did that for taxes? Can you imagine if, if they said, well, if there's a, you know, the president can raise taxes. That that would be crazy. Everyone would be against that. Yeah. We do that with tariffs, though. And as a result, Trump put all these temporary uh, tariffs in, in, in order instead of neg- talking to Congress, negotiating with, with congressional leaders to make a a more permanent protectionist policy. That it might have done the same thing in terms of the numbers, but it would have also had the effect of saying to China, and saying to our companies who operate in China, "This is for real. You can't wait this out. You can't say well, Trump will be gone in a couple of years, whatever. The Democrats will lower him." You know, that's what I think people did. I, you know, when they, when you talk about intermediate goods, that was the excuse you heard a lot. Like Apple says, oh, we can't, we tried, we researched making the iPhone here in, in California. And it, you know, there are so many different little parts that go into it. And all of them are only made in the Far East. Well, they're only made in the Far East because you, you told them to make them in the Far East. And 
bought them from the Far East, so anybody who would have made them in America had no one to sell them to. So it, this is they're 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 tying their own hands and they're saying, "Oh, we, we can't." You know, well that stuff wasn't made in China twenty years ago either. You know, hell, a lot of it wasn't made anywhere twenty years ago. Nobody had an iPhone back then, and a lot of the parts of it, you know, I mean, they're these are all new technologies. They were all not made anywhere until they were. So to say that, you know, well, even if we made the final part, we'd have to bring in everything else. It's the same question. Um, but that question never gets addressed because even if a big company like Apple wants to, all right, we'll find the, the bully pulpit, blah, blah, blah. We'll move our production back home. Well, they're not going to get every little company that supplies them to move here. Not based on a temporary tariff from a president who may or may not be reelected. Right. So I, th- I think. The Trump's trade war didn't work because he didn't actually change any laws. And without changing those laws, without creating a permanent change in the business economy and the, in the uh, business environment, what, what kind of rational stockholder or rational officer of a company would say, well, let's, let's uproot everything we've just built for 10 or 15 years and, and completely change it around because this guy, you know, passed an executive order that he could repeal tomorrow, right? It, that would be nuts. I think, you know, I mean, so it's, it's hard to do counterfactuals, right? I mean, like, like all these jobs lost, jobs gained, they're also counterfactuals, so they're hard to prove. But I'll give you my own. I think if, I think the results would have been different if these had been permanent policies passed by Congress, signed by the president, the way we used to make laws. It would sort of, it would have inspired companies to say, all right, things actually have changed on the ground. Uh, things are changed permanently. Maybe the law, law can be changed, but it's hard to change it. Maybe we should actually adjust our business to, you know, adjust to this new reality. That didn't happen. Uh, it's not going to happen under Biden. I don't, I don't know if it'll happen under whoever's next either, but that's that's something we haven't seen in a long time. And if, if it happened, I think it, you'd have a different set of circumstances. You may be right, but let's go to your uh, original point about what are is our objective? Is our objective low prices at Walmart or is our objective to bolster American workers? And I think, I think you make some good points and certainly a lot of Americans agree with you and a lot of conservatives agree with you. I think where I get a little bit more hung up is on whether industrial policy is effective at, uh, at addressing that. And he gets, uh, mm. strain gets at that just a little bit by kind of explaining Yes, when it comes to the tariffs, it did bolster some manufacturing jobs, but then it created problems for other manufacturing or, or uh, productive jobs like on farms and, and that sort of thing and um, any, any company that had steel inputs and so forth. So I think, I, th- I think you make a compelling point and, and certainly this is why t- tr- Trump was so successful uh, from a, from a uh, messaging standpoint, but it's a compelling point to say, well, are, is the point of American companies to go out there and line their own pockets and help the Chinese, or is it to help Americans? And I think it's not quite so simple. And it's to me, I'm skeptical. I guess this is my conservatism, is this conservatism of just skepticism of uh, government's ability to actually solve those problems. But would, mm-hmm. in, would industrial policy actually be effective? I think it would in the same sense that raising the minimum wage would be effective at helping those workers that already have a job. 
Mm-hmm. But what about but what about the workers who are trying to get a job or the teenagers yeah. who who want that first um, uh, foot peg in into the the job market into into working as a, in their careers and so forth? So I guess that's where I get a little more hung up, and I, I'm I'm just really skeptical that um, that industrial policy actually will work. So even though Orrin Cast makes you know a strong argument for what we really need, the goal, the objective, to your point, is to create jobs and build jobs that build communities and jobs that will allow a single breadwinner to pay and provide for a family. And that is incredibly compelling to me, um, especially since I really come from a, a community where, where, um, we try to focus on just having one breadwinner and, mm. uh, and, and one spouse stay home with the kids. But, um, does, does government policy actually effectively achieve those goals and I'm just kind of skeptical they would. And, when, and in your iPhone example, I think the trouble with that is unless we're going to say we're going to actually increase tariffs on on the Samsung products too, like if, if Apple can't afford to to make them here, in other words, instead of $1,200 for a phone, which is already out of sight <laughs> expensive, <laughs> yeah. if now it's $2,000 for that same phone, I mean, my goodness, what does that mean? It means the competitor's are just going to uh, outbid them and Apple will no longer be the the dominant force in the market unless we're going to put big tariffs on Samsung phones. And, and then we're back to the question of, well, is our policy just folk, is, is our objective really just to lower prices? And in, and in that sense, we're not just talking about here's this, this, this little widget that you could take or leave. And at Walmart, it's 50 cents cheaper than it otherwise be. Now we're talking about like, would there really even be widespread phones in America <laughs> because yeah. it would be out of reach and that sort of thing? Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with your point that industrial policies aren't the best. I mean, they're not, they're not efficient, right? I mean, because you're, if you're talking about what's the best way to determine the price of goods and 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 trade in goods and how it should work, the the free market is that we. We've known that since Adam Smith's day. That's the way you, if you want to get the most goods to market at the lowest price, the free market will do it and you don't have to do anything. Just let it happen. Enforce contracts in court. That's it. But I think, and that, that's why I was a, a free trader for a long time because I saw that and I said, well, you know, that's, that ultimately gives us all the comparative advantages that we would, that we should have. And then different places will produce things they're best at producing. It all makes sense. But, I think, and this is a problem you get into with a lot of libertarian ideas, is you're you're comparing the current system to a perfect system that will never exist. I, th- I think if you could get every single country to buy into this, this free market idea, and that none of them would help out their domestic corporations, none of them would have tariffs at all, none of them would advantage their own workers in any way, we'd all tax each other the same, we'd all have the same government benefits and healthcare would be paid for the same way and everything if everything were the same if we were all big one, one big country then it would make sense i mean just like free trade within the united states makes sense because we're laboring under most of the same conditions i mean state to state some things are different but you know it there's a reason the constitution doesn't allow tariffs between the states it wouldn't it it's part of what unites us as a nation and that's a that's a different issue but i think what you're choosing between and i think strain doesn't really acknowledge this but 
what you're choosing between in real life is between a foreign policy, an industrial policy rather than America creates, hopefully together with its allies, like, like Canada, like, like the EU and, and Japan and, and, and some of the other advanced industrialized nations, you can choose between that or you can choose between doing nothing and having China's industrial policy be enacted upon us. Cause that's what we're getting. China has an industrial policy, right? That's, and it might not be the best thing for their people either, but they're doing it. I mean, it's definitely not the best thing for the for the Uyghurs and for a lot of the other people and people who aren't allowed to have independent unions and a lot of, you know, aren't allowed to go on strike and, and work in unsafe conditions. But that's their industrial policy. That's what they've, well, I shouldn't say they've chosen it. Their government's chosen it. They don't really get a, a say. Um, and that's the industrial policy that is dominating the world now because, you know, in, in a when we in a liberal society decline to choose, we're not, we're not, that's not the absence of a choice. You know, it's the choice to let somebody else decide. Mm-hmm. And that's, 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 that's kind of what changed my mind on a lot of this stuff is because it's choosing between two imperfect alternatives, but I'd rather have the, I think I'd rather have the alternative that involves us having some input and in how it turns out, even though I know there's going to be inefficiencies and there's going to be, there's going to be corruption. I mean, that's what people say a lot about tariffs. Oh, you know, when we used to raise most of our national income by tariffs, there was a lot of corruption in that, you know, lobbyists. There still is when you look at like the sugar trust, you know, sugar tariffs and things like that are, that's a whole thing that even when Marco Rubio was a free trader, he was still for sugar tariffs. (laughs) Now he's not a free trader anymore. And he's still for sugar tariffs because he's from Florida and every state has something like that. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it gets dirty. But I think it's already dirty, and it's and it's all other people's dirt. It's all it's all the Chinese Communist Party's dirt. I'd rather, you know, at least in our system, we have the capacity to screen out some of that dirt through our our laws and our courts. And you know, I mean, like there's there's SEC cases every year of stock cheating and things, and that's not good. But it's still better than other countries where they don't even bother prosecuting that yeah. stuff so i think i think our system could, would not be a perfect system but it would be a better system i mean you raised some great points i guess i would say those are those are all challenges especially china and their cheating that need to be addressed and this is where this i think this subject just gets really complicated because in, in my opinion the best way to address that is to work with allies and in particular what we should have done is sign the Trans-Pacific Partnership, <laughs> TPP, because essentially what that was is it was a geopolitical partnership to, um, to to try to freeze out China or to create separation, and uh, unfortunately it got it got reinterpreted by both candidates, both Pre- President Trump and uh, Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. calling it um, something that it wasn't. I mean, actually, the U.S. tariffs were not going to change under that deal. Because ours are already low, so <laughs> so the yeah, fact no. is, the other countries, the Southeast Asian countries, were going to lower their tariffs. And why would they do that? Because they also they wanted to be they wanted to be with us and wanted our help um, against China. And so it gets very complicated, and none of these things are easy. But but um, anyway, let's move on. So I think you made some great points there. But um, so he's so he also picks up on uh, from another angle. China talks about uh, Marco Rubio who's 
at least stated aim is uh, is his worry about Ch- China from from a, a strategic like military standpoint, and um, what's China's role in the world and the rise of China and so forth. And 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 um, Senator Rubio has argued at times that that's the reason we need industrial policy, similar to what you were saying. Only instead of uh, instead of them winning economically, I think Rubio would be more concerned with them winning. Uh, from from the standpoint of of, of balance of power in in the world, mm-hmm. and I think that strain makes a, a really good argument that it's kind of like that is totally valid, and those are those are legitimate concerns, but we don't necessarily need to to insource those or force every one of those to come back to America. Why not move that production to Vietnam or? To Mexico, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Mexico and Canada are our friends. They really are. And, um, you know, if, if the alternative is either it's, 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 in, it's outsourced from China or it's, or if we have to insource it, what ends up happening is those, we, we lose the comparative advantage and those industries end up moving abroad, which I don't want to see. Or instead, let's just move some of those inputs to, to Vietnam, which a lot of companies have done, um, or Mexico or Indonesia, places that, uh, that want our help, want to be our friends, want to be our allies. Yeah, I, I, I agree with some of that. I mean, those are some good points. And, and it is a problem that foreign policy always gets mixed up in trade policy, and it always has. That's not, that's not new. And it, it, I don't think it's a, when you're talking about trade between nations, that's, that's unavoidable. So I don't, as an economic matter, and as a you know, as a problem with outsourcing to unfree nations that utilize cheap labor from populations that aren't democratic, Vietnam's no better than China in that. In a geopolitical angle, they are surprisingly friendly to us given our history, and we get along a lot better because we both fear the rise of China. And I mean, they fought China too in the seventies. After yeah. they got done fighting us, they they beat China, which is. Yeah. It's a pretty crazy country. They they beat the French. They you know they beat everybody. But so I mean, from a geopolitical standpoint, I'm way happier to do stuff with Vietnam than I am with Red China, even though they're they're both communist dictatorships, right? But it's in the same way that Nixon went to China in the '70s and loosened things up with them, just as a way of triangulating against the Soviet Union, and it was a good good policy then. Um, I don't I don't know that it's it's going to do good for American communities if instead of made in China, it's made in Vietnam, right? Like it's, that doesn't help us at home in, doesn't help us at home. It helps us abroad and it helps us maybe get an ally on our side to help contain the rise of China, which is, I mean, as we're, we're recording this as the, uh, the Russia Ukraine war has begun. And so you, it's war, is not just a theoretical concept this week. It's, you know, it's aggressive nations are doing that. And of course it makes everybody talk about China and and Taiwan and what are they going to do? And these are real concerns. So, I mean, that's also a problem. The trade policy is sometimes going to take a backseat to foreign policy. Mm -hmm. I'll say, I'll say about the TPP that that did get kind of twisted because it, like you said, our tariffs weren't going to come down. And free trade with Japan, I think, would be fantastic because Absolutely, I think we're yeah. we're both on the same we're both on the same page. We're both free democratic nations with expensive labor costs. 
you know, uh, educated populace's unionization, environmental laws, all the things that make business harder in some ways, but that as democratic societies, we've chosen to impose. And certainly we can disagree on the extent to which some of these factors should be our laws, but they are our laws and they're Japan's laws and Canada's laws too. And we shouldn't be having trade wars with those guys. We should be, we should be on the same side with them because they're, if, if Japan, I, I feel like that's a real free trade right there. Like if, if, as long as neither of us is putting our thumb on the scale, you know, if, if Canada has a factory and, and the United States has a factory and they make the same thing, they should be able to trade with each other and it, it, may the best man win because neither one's cheating. Yeah, that's why I never understood Trump's beef with, with Canada. That always just seems stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're like the same as us when it comes to economy, right? I mean, they're, they have a different healthcare system, but you know, it's, it's not like, uh, it's not, it's not like like the Uyghurs in China or it's not like you know some something they're not they're not running slave labor camps in Ontario it's right. it's the same it's the same in Windsor as it is in Detroit so yeah, that 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 part to me makes I, I I would say strain is is right to criticize Trump on his uh trade war with nations that re- really shouldn't be trade war all right, let's move over to the, to the next big one, which is immigration. And he says, Strain argues, so U.S. has the lowest, he, he thinks that we need more immigration. And he's very critical of Trump's uh, moves to curtail immigration. And the, the voices that are coming in Trump's wake, like Senator Rubio or Holly or Cruz, others who want to continue to curtail immigration, and Strain's argument against this is he says the U.S. has the lowest level of immigration in decades, which I'm not entirely sure that's true. I, I, We'd have to look I, at it. Cause yeah, I, th- I think that's true like last year because of the corona. Yeah, that's probably yeah. right. And But we've had uh, Haitians and like it's true that they're not coming from Mexico anymore. I mean, yeah, immigrants to America are really not Mexican at this point. They're from Central America. They're from Haiti. And they're increasingly coming from Eastern Europe and places mm-hmm. uh, from Turkey, you know, increasingly coming from from places that uh, should raise our eyebrows even more. But Strain argues, he says, he actually argues out of both sides of his mouth because he says an overheated labor market may be good for some workers in the near term. But what it really is only going to do is spur businesses to adopt um, new efficiencies, worker replacement technology, like at McDonald's, for example, instead of having workers, you just, or at, or at the grocery store, you, you have self checkout. I hate that self checkout. (laughs) I love it. It's so fast. Uh, you don't have to wait for, for some slow checker. I mean, my wife and I are like twice as fast as any of them. Anyway, uh, his, his other, his other big criticism is to say that, um, it just causes inflation or it feeds inflation when there's not enough workers and, and employers are are, look, are searching for workers. But at the same time, so Strain argues that, but then he also says there is no better jobs program than a hot economy that finds employers chasing workers. And see, here, here's where I come down absolutely when it comes to workers is I do think that companies in general should pay more. I definitely think larger companies should pay more. And mm-hmm. here we have an economy that basically co- cr- creates that, that environment where workers now, we've talked about this on the prior podcast, like workers right now across the country and certainly where I live, even at the the, the most um, 
uh, entry level are making far more money than they ever have. I mean, you can work at McDonald's and make $16 an hour in our neighborhood. Like that's, that's, I'm not going to say that that's going to feed a family, but that's not too bad. And, and it becomes from uh, a very hot economy and it does come from, from restricting immigration. And I, I do think that it's, uh, the, the argument is it's deeply problematic. This argument that, Oh, um, because employers are having to pay more, what we should do is open the borders so that we can have a flood of, of cheaper labor come in. And then, uh, and then at McDonald's, they can go back to paying like eight, $8 instead of, instead of 16. And yes, it does raise, it does raise prices, but, but the market causes it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he, I think what's interesting to me is on the left, I don't really understand the thinking for Democrats because they want to mandate $15 an hour and, but they also want to have uh, open borders. But what happens is if, if the economy's hot and growth is happening, then it companies will naturally need to pay that kind of money so that they can keep, keep good employees and keep workers. And so now you have um, entry level jobs and, a lot of retail and food service that are paying much more than they ever did. And the, the Democrats goals of $15 an hour is being met just about everywhere in this country right now. Yep. And, uh, um, and instead of declaring victory, you know, it's sort of like, well, actually, but at the same time, we need, we need to, um, eliminate ice and make, um, you know, no human is illegal. So let them all in, you know, just like uh-huh. lift the fence and, and, uh, you know, every single American has to be, uh, vaccinated in order to go to a restaurant, but you don't have to be vaccinated in order to come across our border. Like we don't care what, what your vaccination says. You sick, you have COVID cool. Come on in. We were not, you know, don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> yeah. You know, that is crazy. I mean, I remember back in 20, 2016, I think, uh, maybe even a little later, uh, Ezra Klein interviewed Bernie Sanders and he talked about, you know, he sort of asked them a question that presumed Bernie was for, you know, open borders and, and amnesty to the illegals and everything. And Bernie said, no, that's a Koch brothers policy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now by 2020, he had become a Koch brother apparently yeah, he because he was, he was, he was with the rest of them cause he wanted to win. But, but you know, the old, you know, the old style lefty was focused on, you know, making the economy better for workers, which meant not artificially inflating the pool of labor. You know, you can mandate stuff, but if you if you have a tight labor pool, you don't even need to mandate stuff. It's just, like you're saying, it's happening, and that it does confuse me when they say, and and even with a lot of, I mean, a lot of like union guys I know agree with us on this, but then a lot of the union leadership, especially like national leadership in D.C gets on board with all this, you know, no humans illegal, amnesty, you know, that sort of thing that you would think was is undercutting their members' negotiating power every day. I mean, we've got record numbers now by the ministry of, of people who've, who've been caught and released, not even talking about the ones who haven't been caught, you know. And I mean, here about every month when the Biden administration finally releases the uh, the numbers, which they tend to do as late as possible, because they know how bad they are. It's it's a uh, it's a catastrophe for labor, and I don't. Know, I think it. I I think if I had my way, and we did reshore a lot of things, we'd probably need as much legal immigration as we're getting. 
I yeah. think we'd need more because there'd be more. It wouldn't be as much as, I mean, a lot of stuff would be automated, like Strain says. Like people think that's a, a retort. Like, okay, if it's automated, it's still here and there's still somebody working it. You know, it's maybe it's five guys in that factory instead of 20, but there are guys. But I, I do think the, that grouping the legal, illegal immigration together kind of muddies the point too. You know? yeah, yeah. That's another, like you, like you were saying, like Trump, Trump hit the, uh, the big majority side of that issue. And mostly it was because of the illegal aspect. I think most Americans are not against immigration as a, as a legal concept. Yeah, know? exactly. And, and I think it's worth saying that for, for me personally, I'm definitely not against immigration. And I think there should be reasonable amounts of immigration and, and maybe at times more or less, depending on the, our, our situation and our ability to, to um, accept and, and, and to help immigrants assimilate. And I think that as long as we're doing it the right way, you know, and people do it uh, the, the legal and correct way. And I, I 100% believe that a nation, whether it's the United States or any other, has the right to determine who can come in and who can't. And mm-hmm. and it should not be determined by the people uh, trying to sneak in or, or you know, bear, banging the door down, but it should be determined by the nation, by the people. And uh, creating processes that, that work and that make sense. And even in Canada, they take they take more immigrants than we do in America, but they do it very differently. Yep. And I don't know if that's the right way or the wrong way, but it is very different. They take more immigrants, but they basically only take high skilled immigrants. So you can you can come to Canada if you have a graduate degree or something like that. But otherwise, they're pretty much going to say no to you. And and ours, yep. I'm not saying that's the right way or the wrong way. I think there's there are reasons to think that uh, that more high-skilled immigration is just as problematic as, as, uh, the low-skilled Im- immigrants. But I think that most Americans are in the, in the camp of, we need border security. We need laws. Mm-hmm. A nation should be able to determine how many people come in and how many not. And maybe that's more at times and maybe that's less at times, as long as people come in the right way. So that's my view. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that one. I mean, I, 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 th- I think we haven't thought deeply enough about policies like Canada's because I mean if we get back to that issue from Turchin's book about elite overproduction if we import a million PhDs that you've got elite overproduction way worse than we have it now does that cause the issue I mean I don't I don't know if that causes as many issues as Turchin suggested it did but it's certain it's not nothing so and, you know, I, I don't know, most of my ancestors who were immigrants didn't have a lot of skills, you know, but they came over here because that's what America needed is uh, guys to work factories, guys to work on farms, you know, that's, so I'm not sure if Canada's got it right. I'm not sure if we got it right. Um, but definitely the idea that we should pick rather than just having a border that's not enforced rather than just leaving it up to whatever criminal gang in mexico wants to smuggle you across the line that again that's the people who are against restricting illegal immigration are imagining a perfect system the system you have is uh human trafficking by drug dealers and murderers you know and the people coming in aren't murderers i'm not trying to say like that but the the people who are bringing them across the line are and they're doing all sorts of things and, and you're, you're giving you're we're outsourcing our immigration policy to criminal actors 
So I, I agree. We've got to have a policy and it, and whatever it turns out to be, whether it turns out to be like we have, or like, like, I mean, like we have in law, not as we have in practice, but, or, or if it turns out like Canada and Australia, where we have a whole different kind of point system, that's either one is better than the sort of uh, free for all we've got going on now. Totally agree with all that. Any uh, last words on strain? Um, I was just say this was this was fun to read because I know it's one of the only issues you and I disagree on on the show. So it was it was fun to hear. I like hearing different points of view. I think it. I think if you don't engage with the other side, whether it be in your own party or in the other party, you never really get your ideas as sharp as they can be. You never really answer all the questions. So I, I enjoy talking to you about this stuff, and we will probably. I think we we probably agree on more than that sounds like, but. Um, it's it's definitely a, if if we're trying to figure the future of conservatism where it's going where it's been and all that uh where it's going is pretty uncertain on this i think yeah. i think one of these parties is going to be the free trade party and one of them isn't uh but i'm still not sure if that's that's us or them yeah so uh, yeah i agree with all that and it is it's it's fun to kind of find those little areas cuz you and i agree on so much but even this like you said we're pretty close but it's it's difficult to tell what the, where where the emphasis is going to go moving forward. I suspect that if it's true, as it seems to be, that the destiny for Republicans over the next twenty years is to become more working class and have a a larger coalition, more his, uh, working class Hispanics and maybe more black men, but at the very least, uh, a, a more working class uh, across um, you know ethnic and racial spectrum then trade is going to come it's going to it's going to move in your more in your direction than than where it's been as far as what i think is has worked and and not worked but you know hopefully what we can do is find that we're not going to find the exact sweet spot there's always trade-offs as we know in conservatism Mm -hmm. that's that's one of our tenets hard tenets is that there's going to be a trade-off but maybe we can find a, a sweeter spot on this uh moving forward all right that's strain catch us next time